Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Will, how was Nashville? How was Garth? Oh my gosh, man. It was uh, it was electric. I, dude, somehow haven't been to Nashville since I was like six, man. I've been to Knoxville. I've been to Memphis. I've been to or that random part of Tennessee, Bonnaroo's in. Uh, but yeah, I got to catch up for all of it, man. Got to, you know, hit some bars, got to hit up a cool, like, couple of cool local, like, diner spots. And, and like, Garth himself, man, like, you know, you hear from kind of like, um, my parents go to a ton of concerts, but it's like your parents, right? Like, it's like, do you really, like, are you really with it? Nah, dude. Like, it was, it was fire. They were saying it was, like, one of the best shows they had seen. And it was crazy because he had apparently gotten rained out in Nashville in 2021 and hadn't played there in, like, a super long time. And so oh, a wow. bunch of the people, like, dude, like 80% of the people that were there had been at the, fr- the first show and it all gotten rained on and literally had been there for 45 minutes and were sitting in rain, like, up to their, like, knees almost because it was in the Titan Stadium. And Garth just, like, came out and was like, guys, like, it's not, like, we, it's not safe to play tonight. So point being, it was, like, this amazing crowd. I mean, the thing that was crazy about it, we'll, you know, get back, the, no in-depth Garth breakdown, but this was super cool. He said his entire studio band, like, the band he, you know, does the studio albums with, uh, are all still together from the first album. And he has four members of his touring band that have been there from the beginning. And, like, I just, like... I want to talk to Garth's therapist, man. I just want to see how you keep like two different groups of, cause you know band guys are insane, just generally. Yeah. So like you never, ever, ever see one group of guys that have been together since 92, let alone two. So it's just great vibes. That's that's awesome. I, I need to see Garth top three, probably country bucket list, maybe just overall. Yeah, like my country bucket list right now is Garth, George, and John Party. Like that's, those are the three I need to see. I would like to see a Kenny Chesney concert, but I don't feel comfortable putting him in that group <laughs> for me. I don't want to say that. But yeah, I'll be in Nashville this weekend. So, uh, and also same sort of thing. Haven't been there as, as an adult. Mm-hmm. Been there like two different times, one of which was on the outskirts of it. So I don't really know if it counts. And the other time I was in high school. It's like, you can't really experience Nashville when you're in high school. And obviously the place has changed so much, but man, that's awesome. Very, very jealous. You were just the, the walking example of the, uh, your favorite meme, the, the cat with the cowboy hat. <laughs> the LSU out. logo with the bush. Yes. yes. I was, dude, I got to see calling Baton Rouge with my mom and Brittany. That was awesome. Oh. I also want to do uh, peel behind the onion. I texted you like four beers in the middle of that concert. And this is like exactly <laughs> us. I go, so they had a grand old Opry opening with like all these other guys there. Chase Rice was there. There were some older school guys. And it was like, it was a super cool, there was like a grand old Opry episode or like intro that was uh, like shot there or whatever. So uh, I texted Connor and I go, Chase Rice open for Garth. Do you know this lad? Connor goes, yes, period. Not bad, but not my favorite. Former UNC linebacker. Fun fact. I love the live review. Look, look, if a country artist played college football, your boy's going to be all over. All right. We're going to, we're going to, we can talk about Sam Hunt playing quarterback at UAB. Somebody somewhere just listened to that and said, I can't believe he just called Sam Hunt a country artist, whatever. Somebody who gets play on country radio. You know what I mean by that? Of course I'm going to know that. That was, hey, that was my fun fact though. I literally did the whole like nudge, but hey, you know, he played linebacker at UNC. Like I felt in the know. So I appreciate, that's what you're here for, Connor. I appreciate that. There we go. That's all we're here to do. We're going to drop a, a lot of knowledge today. Uh, great, great show lined up. We've got longtime Chicago Tribune sports writer Teddy Greenstein coming up in a bit to talk about a, a bunch of different things, including his new book, Quarterback Dads. I think a lot of people will find his insights really interesting. He talked to a lot of important people in the sport. We're also going to do Runaway Pets in figuring out because... 
Your boy had a situation this weekend. Oh no. Uh, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll get to that a little bit later. But first, we're gonna do a little bit of a throwback to the regular season because in some ways it felt like an SEC regular season. In many ways it did not, but there were six SEC spring games that were in action over the weekend. And I guess that's excluding Mississippi State because they got rained out, but it's including Florida who played on Thursday. So we're coming in hot with with some notes here. We're gonna do one thing I liked from each of these individual games. Got a lot to get to. So. Let's start with Florida on Thursday night. The one thing I liked, uh, Billy Napier squashed any notion that Florida was using a turnover chain after we saw that on the sidelines. No, not really. Uh, I did like seeing the post-game quote from all the Florida beat writers uh, wherein Napier said, nobody ran that by me, that ain't gonna happen. Thank you. You texted me that and I was like, you realize that's worse, right? <laughs> that was my initial take. It's like, oh, there was a secret turnover chain. They didn't run by Napier. Even better. Amazing. <laughs> I definitely had a moment of pause when I first saw the chains and I'm like, oh, wow. I've, I've been pretty vocal in supporting Napier's vision. And then he does that. I'm like, oh, that's, that's a demerit if I've ever seen one. So personally, for my own selfish takes, I'm relieved to see that he put the kibosh on the turnover chain. Let's just kind of do that collectively. It's, it's weird how the turnover chain has has died like disco with the famous disco demolition night at the old Comiskey Park back in the day. There's going to be a lot of Chicago sports references in this podcast. Just kind of get ready for Buckle it. Buckle in. Yeah. Uh, get, get, the, get on the Google machine and, and see that one if you don't know what I'm talking about. Disco demolition night. But anyway, non-turnover chain news. The one thing I actually liked, <clears throat> Anthony Richardson is clearly QB1. And I don't say that to knock Jack Miller, the Ohio State transfer, but it was pretty evident that even in a controlled setting, Jack Miller's not quite ready, thrown into triple coverage in the red zone. That's just predetermining a read and making a costly mistake that was kind of shades of 2021 Florida when it gave the ball away 21 times. You see Miller kind of not really have that sort of confidence when the play breaks down. And to be expected to a certain extent, he hasn't had those reps. Richardson, on the other hand, looks like he's getting better in that scenario and he's becoming more decisive. The RPO slant over the middle is going to be there for this group. It won't be the cheat code that it was for like Tua and, and Jalen Waddle or Jerry Judy, whoever, but it's going to be a major staple of this offense. It's very, very clear. That's important though for Richardson's development. How many chances last year did he really get in rhythm within a game? Think about this. Last year, he had two games with double digit pass attempts. That's it. That was the Georgia game, which was his first career start, and it was against arguably the best defense of the 21st century, and then the LSU game, which he came in the second half after Emory Jones threw that pick six to fall behind two scores. So, like, that's not really a quarterback in rhythm. Mm -hmm. I want to see what it looks like. In that spot, basically every possession afterwards is, is pretty high pressure, and, you know, Richardson, to that point, hadn't even started a game yet. But there are little things that a guy in rhythm getting normal reps should become more comfortable with. For example, recognizing when you've got a free play and knowing what to do with it. There was a play in the first quarter in the spring game where a guy was pretty obviously offsides and Richardson, instead of just spiking the ball because it was a spring game, 
played it at full speed. He rolled to his right. He made a perfect on-target throw to his receiver who kind of found the soft spot in the zone. Doring pointed it on the broadcast, and it was a gr- I thought it was a great observation about you know understanding the moment. And that, that might seem like a given, but it's not. And, and that's a, a chance to potentially get free yards where maybe a lot of things in your brain will say, just spike the football, we're going to play another down, don't do something stupid and get hurt. Obviously, if he gets hurt in that spot, we play the results and we say, what is he doing? That play could have been whistled dead. Oh, yeah. So I, I came away really liking what we saw from Richardson. I, I did. And this will probably be a situation where uh, Napier can give him all the reps with the first teamers in fall camp. I think that's key for him. He needs that. He needs rhythm. That's what you're looking to establish with him. I still think there are going to be some growing pains for him as a decision maker. I'm not saying that just one offseason with Billy Napier is totally going to take that out of his game. But there's just so much upside with the things that he can do, especially if he improves that downfield accuracy and secondaries really have to respect that instead of kind of locking in on him as a runner or handing it off to Montreal Johnson, who came over from Louisiana, Sunbelt freshman of the year. I should probably be talking about him a little bit more. Really liked what we saw from him. Good showing all around for Anthony Richardson. And I'll just say this, Anthony Richardson knows that he can't be pushing triple digits at four in the morning. So I'll leave it at that. (laughs) Yeah, I think, like like you said, the thing about Anthony Richardson that's crazy is, like, if you go back and really almost, like, look at his stats, it, it's like, it, it's almost like the most le- most misleading stat line we've ever seen in NFC history, because he only had six TDs and five interceptions last year, but every play he was in was, like, electric, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, I like your point about in rhythm, because it's like, yeah, we saw him, you know what I'm saying, we saw him in the LSU game, we saw him in the Georgia game, but that was just gross mismanagement by, by Mullen, and it's like, yeah, like, it's, it's almost like you got to tell all the other stories as we've done in here before with him. And like you said, you know, you love to see him in an offense that will really give him the keys. We talked about kind of like that weird situation they had with Emory Jones and everything. It's just good to good to see a quarterback perfect for that system so far winning, you know? And I kind of wonder about how much, you know, he hasn't necessarily said this, but if you were in that situation and you're trying to show you should be the starter, how much in your brain is saying, I need to make that superstar play all the time? Yep. Which... He clearly was trying to do that in, in his low moments. You saw that a lot where you're just like, man, look, it, it's not there. You need to be able to appreciate the boring and be willing to take kind of the boring check down, whatever that may be, and know where that decision is. So I, I came away, though, feeling like, okay, this is exactly what Florida fans could have hoped for in this spot. And you've got something to work with, somebody who's got just so, so much upside. Alabama. The one thing I liked, Will Anderson was so good that they literally had to remove him from the game so that the offense could get a real look. Love that. <laughs> not making this up. We are not making this up. It, it was not fair letting him play one hand touch. It just wasn't. They should have made Will Anderson play with his hands behind his back. Even <laughs> in that scenario, though, like his get off is so good that I'm probably still taking him to win that battle every single time. And look, like. Some Bama fans might push back on that and say, you know, they were missing two starting offensive linemen. They're replacing two starters at tackle, one of them being Evan Neal. And and they just got Tyler Steen, the the offensive tackle from Vandy. It still felt like watching a dad playing against his son's Pop Warner team. (laughs) It was bad. I mean, they had this great interaction with Matt Stinchcomb walking the field with a mic'd up Saban. And Stinch asked Saban if there was anybody in college football who could block Anderson. And Saban... (laughs) Saban kind of sounded like he wanted to just say no way because that's what everybody's thinking. But he instead went with, I'm sure there is somewhere, but he's a pretty good rusher. Uh, Yeah, Uh, confirmed on that. Um, The good news for Alabama is that Bryce Young is only going against Will Anderson in settings like that. Mm -hmm. 
Young is going to have plenty of experience running for his life and making plays. We saw that last year. He's pretty good. He looks like a guy who's very familiar in that role. You heard Saban sort of mention, you know, we might try and bring in a tight end or get a chip on him, Will Anderson that is, with a running back just so that we can get some real looks with the first teamers out there instead of having to play, you know, blown dead in two and a half seconds because Will Anderson beat his man and touched the quarterback. It's not exactly a great scrimmage to be able to have, but at the same time, I'm kind of glad that they didn't do that. They're trying to stick to their identity, which is not having those tight ends on pass protection. And I don't think you you really want your new stud tailback, Jameer Gibbs, who looked fantastic, by the way. I don't think you want him having to absorb the blow of Will Anderson at full speed. Not the spot you would like him in. Welcome to the SEC, son. Go block Will Anderson. We got no yeah. answers for him, so you just gotta gotta get in there with your hips, man. He's like, did I use my one-time exemption already, or <laughs> like, is that still good right now? I don't think he'd be signing up for that. Uh, I, I do think that Anderson is going to continue to show a weakness that Alabama has on the offensive line, but as much as that was kind of the focal point. I think someone like Christian Leary could become really important if he emerges as this kind of reliable, versatile slot guy. He was the leading receiver on Saturday. Bryce Young needs guys, or as many as possible, guys who can get separation near the line of scrimmage, which it looks like Leary can do. Alabama lost all that talent at receiver, obviously pretty well documented to lose Jameson Williams, John Matchy, Slade Bolden. But if you also include the fact that Jaleel Billingsley, Javon Baker, and Jai Hall all hit the portal, this stat is nuts. That right there with those six guys, that's 1,131 slot snaps that Alabama has to replace. So even if even if he doesn't step into that role as like a first team guy, because I know if you saw Leary, you're like he made the big play downfield catching a pass from Jalen Milrow, who is just built out of a, a like looks like a statue. They're like he's got four percent body fat, which I don't think is physically possible. You might but die they're gonna throw like really on some hydration treatment. Yeah, like <laughs> I think he needs more than that. I get the point, and he definitely looks the part. But at the same time, like we're gonna need to see Christian Leary kind of get on that same page with Bryce Young. It's understandable if he hasn't had a lot of those reps with the ones, but I like the odds of, of Leary and, and Jojo Earl, a guy that a lot of people are talking about in camp, kind of becoming those key contributors as slot guys. I think Bryce Young needs that instead of a lot of these slow developing plays. They would not like him to be in those spots where he has to improvise behind the line of scrimmage. And I think we're going to see these situations more so with guys like that who are emerging as underclassmen stepping up into that role. And Will Anderson kind of shows you why you need to be a little bit quicker with some of these concepts in the SEC and especially at Alabama. Okay, Georgia. One thing I liked, Eric Gilbert, man. Eric Gilbert. Will, what's your new nickname for Eric Gilbert? The problem, because he's always a problem for somebody. It's either his team or the other team. Win? Look. Which one? Find out on the next episode of Dragon Ball Z, man. <laughs> That's, is that consecutive episodes with Dragon Ball Z references? You know what? It might that be, that actually. I'm sorry, <laughs> Gilbert finally looked excellent in a Georgia uniform. I was thinking about this. The last good moment that guy has probably had on a football field wherein people are watching was 2020. Yep. Middle of 2020 and in front of very limited crowds. So I don't know if Eric Gilbert has had as many people cheer for him as he did during G-Day, hmm. which is a crazy thing to think about considering this is a guy who's entering year three of college as such a decorated recruit, of course. We saw 
the skill set on display. Opening drive touchdown, catches a ball in traffic over the middle of the field. That's what he's going to be best doing. He had another score late where Stetson found him in the back of the end zone. And in some ways, it was kind of reminiscent of the first college touchdown that he had back at LSU in 2020, mm -hmm. where Miles Brennan is falling away and he just sort of heaves it in his general direction. And Gilbert makes this play like at his feet. And you're like, wow, that guy, he went down and get it. That's not usually a play that you would see a tight end go out and make. And perhaps the most encouraging thing for Merrick Gilbert was that with 30 seconds left in the spring game, he had this long catch and run in the middle of the field to set up the game-winning field goal. I say that because we found out on the broadcast that when Gilbert rejoined the team in January, he was north of 300 pounds. Thick I mean, king. Yeah. When I heard that, I I'm sitting there on the couch with Lauren and I'm like, wait, I, I, I was like, what? I, I had to rewind that to make sure I did not hear that wrong. And when you think about it though, it kind of makes sense because the dude is 6'5", and it, when you're 6'5", you can sneak up to three bills in a hurry oh, if yeah. you aren't fully locked in, which clearly last year, Gilbert wasn't where he needed to be, mm -hmm. all right? Kind of a lot of different you know, stories, reports, whatever you want to call it, rumors about what exactly was going on behind the scenes and what that guy was doing to try and get right. But I remember last year when we're talking about Eric Gilbert and his impact with Georgia, and he was supposed to be cutting weight to switch to receiver. Yep. So to hear that he ballooned up to 300 pounds, you're like, wow, that's, that's an incredible thing to think about. And the spring actually worked out really well for him because he was able to get back down to his comfortable weight and Brock Bowers, Donnell Washington, both out in the spring with injuries. So that meant on Saturday, we saw a whole lot of Eric Gilbert. We saw a whole lot of Oscar Delp, the true freshman, which by the way, Oscar Delp being the team's leading receiver as the fourth string tight end, it uh, it prompted me to fire off a tweet about how it's gotta be just brutal for South Carolina fans to see that. And uh, don't you know it, I had South Carolina fans just pour into my mentions saying about how they don't need him, they're gonna be just fine, which look, I, I agree. And people listening to this podcast have heard me talk about my belief in Jaheim Bell. Uh, he's going to be coming to an all bang the drum team real soon. Get ready for that. That's gonna be a summer publication for you. And I've talked about Austin Stogner, the Oklahoma transfer who came with Spencer Radler, kind of having that built-in chemistry with the new South Carolina quarterback. But man, South Carolina fans were freaking out out for Delp. Remember the whole like, we want Delp chance, all that. Beamer mentions him at SEC media days, like without saying his exact name, but he basically did everything but that. Mm -hmm. So look, I, I get that your tight end room is, is really nice, but don't sit here and tell me that you don't need him when you guys were freaking out about this guy a year ago. All right, just, just gonna throw that out there. This this is a, a crazy thing that, that I that I heard in the broadcast that I kind of pondered and I was like, I wondered if they could do this. Um, and maybe, maybe they could, maybe they could. McElroy threw out on the broadcast the idea that Georgia could run 14 personnel. Run, one running back, four tight ends. Yep. Uh, if there's anybody that can do it though, it's Todd Munkin. Georgia's the only SEC team who had three tight ends get over 300 snaps last year. And that was with Darnell Washington being banged up and with Eric Gilbert obviously out for the year. So uh, look, I don't think they're gonna do it a lot. I don't know that they're gonna run a whole lot of 13 personnel a lot, but 
there is definitely a place for Gilbert to be able to emerge and have an impact in this offense, wherein he's not buried on the depth chart as soon as Brock Bowers, as soon as Darnell Washington come back. He could still have growing pains ahead, but I, I'm happy for Eric Gilbert. I, I disagreed with uh, with McElroy on the broadcast about it, about Georgia using Gilbert like Gronk, where they just kind of split him out wide and throw a goal line fade to him. Uh, Eric Gilbert is many things, but Will, as an LSU fan, um, you know that Eric Gilbert's skill set is not really high pointing the football just yet. That's not what he's been able to do well. So it's kind of like, uh, I don't know how much they've really watched him because he's not, he's freakish, but at 6'5, 250, he's not going up and making that type of play. He's better kind of getting those mismatches in the slot or being able to make a play over the middle of the field or running those drag routes where you get a mismatch on him. But Goal line fade, uh, not really there just yet. That's a wildly, with, with that's it. such a strange, those are two so not even close players. It's like, have you seen Grok like run ever? Like, it's, <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean? Like those are the most two different tight ends I've ever seen in my life. Like Grok's big thing is he just has very sure hands. He's huge, you can't bring him down. Gilbert's like the opposite of that. Yeah, he's like shifty, like legit fast yeah yeah and it's a different skill set i think that's even for gronk i'm sure that was a really hard thing to have to learn yeah. we, we kind of view it as this simple play of oh we have three receivers split out to the right we've got our big matchup you know out here on the left and we're going to see if this 510 corner can cover him let him go make a play it's like well 510 corners practice that all day. The tight ends aren't the ones who are sitting there in practice running that all the time. Right. Now, if Georgia wants to be able to develop that, that's gonna take a lot more time. But as of right now, I, I disagreed with that notion. McElroy said a lot of very smart things I thought on the broadcast. That one, just a little bit of a miss for me. So I, I love what Saturday meant for Eric Gilbert. I'll, I'll echo what Kirby said about him having a long way to go. And Saturday was just more of continuing his great story just to get to that point. Seems like a really high point in the SEC for tight ends in general. Like you talk about, you know, Kyle Pitts and then Brock Bowers and Weidermeyer and the guys who've been coming up lately. That's gotta be, I mean, even if Eric Gilbert, let's just say Eric Gilbert's just out there as a decoy, easily the best tight end bearing in college football history, right? Yeah. Him and Bowers is like, how do you even think about stopping that? They're very different skill sets as well. Bowers, like we've talked about, shockingly like quick and agile, really great athlete, but it's just, you can like line them both up in line. You can make them both receivers. Like it's just horrifying, really, to be honest. And they're, they're going to find different ways to use them. I don't know that it's going to be Eric Gilbert split out wide, mm -hmm. um, but they will find a lot of ways to get those guys incorporated. Arkansas, the one thing I liked the Malik Hornsby creativity. We, we've heard a lot about this in spring, kind of heard the storyline about him entering the transfer portal and then he comes back out, decides he's gonna stay at Arkansas. There's kind of this agreement that he's gonna be getting reps at receiver, but in a controlled setting, we kind of got to see it. Very controlled, by the way. Weather forced the game indoors, no fans. Didn't really feel like much of a spring game, but whatever, the video is up. You can watch it if you want, like I did. Um, there's still, in my opinion, it was interesting kind of seeing the way that he was utilized in Kendall Bryles offense. No real tackling, just wrapping up. That was another reason it didn't really feel like a spring game. Um, not totally crazy about that, but it kind of is what it is. I, I thought that despite it not being a great setting for a dual threat quarterback, which Malik Hornsby still is, even with the 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 continued reps at receiver, um, I, I still thought it was great to kind of see some of their plans with him. And they split him out wide a little bit. And I, I, I thought just kind of seeing his skill set on display was impactful. And this is somebody who should be a 
piece of the offense. Even though we believe in KJ, I think he deserves to start off as an all-SEC quarterback, I think he needs to be involved in the offense and not necessarily in like a gimmicky two quarterback system where KJ plays three series and then comes out. That's not the way that I want to see him use. And I'm not even one of those people saying that I want to become a full-time receiver, though they do like what they've gotten from Cade Fortin, the, the USF quarterback transfer, somebody who's started off his career at UNC and his development as a backup would hopefully allow Malik to be able to get more reps at receiver. But I actually kind of like the idea of him being this relief pitcher, right? Like where maybe you're up 14 points or 17 points in the fourth quarter. And instead of having KJ out there taking these hits on the RPOs mm -hmm. and taking you know some of those unnecessary shots, when you're Arkansas, you know you're running the ball. You were the best rushing attack in power five last year. You're going to be doing that at, these, at the end of these games where you're up multiple scores. Bring him Malik, man. Let's see what he can do. Let's make him a valuable piece of this offense because he's different. And it's almost like going from, you know, maybe the 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 guy like the the crafty lefty who throws in the low 90s in baseball and he's the starting pitcher and he goes 7 innings or something like that. And then you bring in this guy with like a a funky delivery from the right side but he just throws gas. Mm -hmm. You're like, "Man, that's a tough adjustment to have to make." And I think you kind of saw a little bit of that in the Penn State game. They brought him in with about 6 minutes left and basically just ran out the clock up two scores in that game and I, I think it makes a lot of sense especially considering KJ is going to take a lot more hits he's coming off the offseason knee surgery you need to be able to protect him for the long haul those hits add up even when he's not necessarily the one carrying the football so I, I would like to be able to kind of see that I don't need to see Malik Hornsby throwing the football all right this is a guy who's a 58% passer in high school he threw four for 14 in a spring game I don't say that to hate on the kid right but I think there needs to be an understanding of what's expected in this offense. And he's entering year three now. He can still be used in an effective way, I think. But use him in spots. Allow him to kind of be able to, to, to understand that role. And think about this. I mean, if you're a defensive coordinator, you're having a game plan for KJ, Rocket Sanders, Dominique Johnson, AJ Green. And you're like, wait, we've got to figure out a package to stop Malik Hornsby? This guy who is probably the fastest guy in the field whenever he steps on it, like that sucks. That's five different guys that you've got to figure out ways to bring down, all of which you kind of bring different things to the table. I, I'm, I'm okay kind of using him in that role. I don't know if he's going to be fully on board with a package that looks like that, but I do find myself hoping that Kendall Bryles kind of trends in that direction, even if it means taking away some of KJ's numbers and understanding like maybe he doesn't end up with an all SEC because he doesn't play in the fourth quarter a lot of these games in which they're up maybe 14 points and they're just going to be running the football anyways. Um, yeah, as long as he understands that role though, I would love to be able to see that. Okay, let's go to Vandy. Let's go to Vandy here. <laughs> That's the one thing I like, uh, nobody lost. Let's go. <laughs> Goodness. You know what, Vandy? Remember when I said that Vandy's vibe right now is mean by Taylor Swift? Mm -hmm. You had to know. You just had to know that the internet was going to roast a 32 to 32 result. Okay? You can't be the program who hasn't beat a Power 5 program in the 2020s and then have a tie final score of a spring game. <laughs> you can't do Flip a coin for three points. Play steal the bacon for a point. Shout out to the XFL. It's Vandy. Do an academic decathlon for all I care and award seven points to the winner of that. Figure out a solution. OK, 
okay? I don't care. You just can't give the internet that type of opening. And Vandy still hasn't figured that out. They lack the self-awareness. Well, we talked about the graphics department with the new logo and how it was an oversight not to see that you could flip that logo easily and make an L out of it. Xavier was the first one to do that to Vandy. Dare I say, <clears throat> in this world of completely savage social media, like they, there are athletic departments and I'll get to them in a second here, who just added that to their files. Mm -hmm. They're just like, oh, thanks Xavier, right there, boom, we're gonna steal that. Uh, Vandy plays two group of five teams on the road this year. I was, let me repeat that. Vandy plays two group of five teams on the road this year. I was just gonna blindly go on the record and say that no SEC team has ever done that, but I'm like, you know what? Vandy's probably done that in recent memory. <laughs> and don't you know it, they did it in 2015. They played at Houston and at Middle Tennessee, which, look, at least this year they're starting off at Hawaii, and they're starting off against a Hawaii team that's in the toilet completely, the weird Todd Graham fallout where they're suddenly being coached by Timmy Chang, who spent the last five years there was a receivers and tight ends coach at Nevada, but they were so desperate that they clearly pulled out the Rolodex of former Hawaii players who are coaching in college football, and they're like, oh, hey, we got one, all right. <laughs> Timmy, come on down, come back to your alma mater. Let's make this thing happen. Anyway, I can close my eyes and picture Hawaii with Timmy Chang and a team that ranks 129 out of 130 teams in percentage of returning production using that Vandy logo as an L right after they win the opener. I can see that happening. Vandy fans, look, I'm, not, I'm just trying to get you mentally ready for that. Either that or Northern Illinois will open you know, which by the way, they're, they're gonna open as a favorite in that game. Northern Illinois is coming off a MAC championship. True, we respect, uh, we are Northern Illinois respecters. Jordan Lynch, yes. come on. Come on. Michael the Burner Turner, my dad Mike sold him a car. Turner, let's go. He's sold him yeah. a car? Big, yeah, my dad sold him a car, That's long fine. time ago. Very long time ago. Um, yeah, but you can see Northern Illinois definitely using that against Vandy. And you're just like, oh, you just set yourself up for this. So, what I, we're talking about Vanny's spring game. Yes, yes spring game. Sure. Nobody lost, nobody lost. Uh, Mike Wright maybe won the starting quarterback job, but probably not. I, I still think he's gonna be the guy. They're not gonna name one right away. He took off for this 56 yard run and on the call, our, our friend Roman Harper was like, well, he had a guy open, but instead of trying to be accurate, just go out and be athletic. <laughs> A great offensive philosophy that would oh be. yeah that's yeah I, like, I know whole offensive coordinators who do that that's fire yep. just go out and be athletic it's not a good sign when they're talking about aj swan being familiar with bad offensive line play they're like hey this true freshman who had you know he, he had a offensive line issues on his high school team so he should be built for this um the offensive line still going to be rough with especially with pass protection and against the vandy defense that had nine sacks last year in this spring game which yeah i watched it still didn't look great I would not want to subject a true freshman to that. But I did see a lot of promising things from, from AJ Swan. I, like, I, I thought that throwing deep over the middle of the field, he looked really good. He had one play where he just predetermined read, typical, like didn't read the coverage, easy interception. But two other plays where you kind of see the upside, you see him just kind of drop it in a bucket. I wonder if his emergence kind of leads to the transfer of Ken Seals, if that's going to be one of these pre-May first transfers. One last thing on the Vandy spring game. Um, they have a running back, Patrick Smith, who has the incredible nickname of Cheeks. Winning. Why wow, this Look, is my new favorite Vandy player. This is incredible. Cheeks, Cheeks is going to get some run this year. <laughs> Sorry. 
I'm not gonna make any more jokes about that. Let's let's go to South Carolina. Connor, you're a war criminal. I'm sorry. That is the daddest dad joke I've ever heard. No, no. So let's go to South Carolina. All right. One thing I liked, besides that atmosphere, which looked fantastic, is the ultimate good vibes team in college football. You can't be the ultimate good vibes team in college football and have a bad spring game atmosphere. I love, this is gonna be really specific. I love passing out of the bunch formations that Marcus Satterfield really seems to have bought into, especially after how work, how well they worked in the Mayo Bowl. It's, it's not that South Carolina didn't do that last year, but when you have someone who can make all the throws like Spencer Rattler does, your possibilities are endless. We saw Kentucky do a lot of this last year with Liam Cohen. We saw LSU do a lot of it with the bunch formations back in that 2020 offense. They would line up Eric Gilbert, kind of bringing him across on these drag routes, creating space that way, which you would not think bunch formation creating space, but that's what they do. With South Carolina, I think and hope we see Marcus Marcus Satterfield do this a lot because it emphasizes the versatility of the pass catchers, opens up the route tree possibilities. Spencer Rattler's best play of the night. They line up with a receiver, essentially like where the slot would be. Xavier Leggett is lined up there. Then you have a guy in line on the same side and then two guys on the opposite side lined up in line. And Rattler is under center, which new process for him after spending basically three years in Oklahoma's version of the air raid. My guy, Bill Bender at Sporting News talked to Radler about that, uh, like that whole transition and how he's actually having to, to do stuff pre-snap that he's really never had to do before. He's identifying the Mike linebacker. He's understanding protections and slides and all these different things because when you play in a pro style system, that's what you gotta do. So on this play, Radler lines up under center. He sells the play action and he delivers just a dart to Xavier Leggett about like 27, 28 yards away, perfectly in stride. And that right there is why you roll the dice on Spencer Rattler. Mm -hmm. If he can grasp these concepts in a live setting and make next level throws like that, you have something that you have not had at South Carolina. Again, Connor Shaw is great, Steven Garcia, plenty of talent, but the combination of scheme and arm talent is why South Carolina doesn't have to reinvent the wheel just to fit Rattler's skill set. This is what pro-style offenses look like now. This is what the Sean McVays of the world are trying to run. The very next play, you saw Rattler and shotgun where he dumps it off to the back, Juju McDowell, and it's a little bit ahead of him. It's, it's a catchable ball though, and he can't haul it in, but Rattler is there with thumbs up right away, and he's like, hey, we're good we're good. I think a lot of people on the internet who always see the clip from him in high school assume that he's just the worst teammate of all time and they're going to pile on any chance they get. And Spencer Rattler is clearly making it a point to not really give the internet that ammo. And maybe it looks different when games actually count, but I think Rattler kind of understanding how truly important it is to lead and not getting frustrated in those key spots where either he doesn't understand the new offense or a guy doesn't make the play. I think that's really important. These things sound little, but it's the little things in my opinion that are gonna make or break the Spencer Rattler experiment at South Carolina. I like seeing him adjust. I like seeing that he's put on about 10 to 12 pounds of good weight, as they said on the broadcast. He wants to make his lower half stronger because he's gonna use his legs a lot more than he did at Oklahoma. Shane Beamer said as much after the game. He's trying to quiet the notion that he just relies on his arm talent. All in all though, about it, probably what I expected to see from Spencer Rattler and the South Carolina offense. Will, any other takeaways about South Carolina, 
anything. I feel like I need to catch my breath. Man. <laughs> that was great, man. No, I love that the uh, examples of him being a cool guy are like one thing long. It's <laughs> thumbs up during the sprint game. That's a rebrand. Though. Thumbs up, man. That's a, that's a rebrand. I'm just gonna say really quick, just generally, uh, sprint games are very cool. Uh, my buddy who's a UCF fan texted me and said, "Hey, John Rice probably looked amazing during UCF sprint game and talked about the other quarterback looking great too." And I was like, "You know, that means John's defense sucks, right?" And he was, <laughs> <laughs> and he was that's like, always the yeah, exactly. That's the line. If the offense looks great, oh man, we got to worry about the defense. Right. And if you're Texas A&M, what a great defense. So that's the best part. Yep. Unless you're Vandy and, you know, you don't win. But, hey, you should lose. So, yeah, it's just <laughs> I, I literally, like, love this time of the year to be able to go back and see kind of the Zapruder film. You know how it goes, Connor. You fire off ten takes. You know, eight of them you, you delete into the wilderness. But two of them, those are going to pad out later. <laughs> Screenshots live forever, Will. You know this as well as oh, yes. <laughs> Let's kick it to Teddy Greenstein. Little peel behind the onion here. This was a thrill for me growing up as a, as a kid in the suburbs of Chicago. I used to, to fight with my, my brother and my dad for the sports section, and Teddy's face was always on that front page all the time. Teddy spent 20 years at the Chicago Tribune, and I definitely grew up just wanting to be like him. So if it sounds like I'm a little fanboyish, uh, that's why. Here is Teddy Greenstein. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is longtime Chicago Tribune writer and co-author of the new book, Quarterback Dads, Teddy Greenstein. Uh, Teddy, you wrote this book with Donovan Dooley. It's, it's a fascinating concept because I, I think for, for those who have seen the 30 for 30 on Todd Marinovich, we, right. we've, we've kind of seen what like the stereotypical over-the-top quarterback dad looks like. What did writing this book kind of teach you about maybe the, the more modern day approach to being a quarterback dad. Yeah, Connor. Awesome to be with you. I like all the Chicago stuff behind you. So we'll certainly be uh, talking about that. I'm uh, at walking distance to Wrigley field here in Chicago and big 10 country. And yeah, like crazy quarterback dads are different from how they were in the Marv Marinovich era. You know, back then it was, he was assembling, you know, this team of experts who was going to, uh, train Todd and be involved in every single aspect of his life. And Todd wasn't allowed to have ding dongs or Big Macs. And, um, you know, anytime he did something wrong, he'd have to do push ups or sit ups. And, and it was just this kind of full immersion. Um, so, in some ways, they're similar and in some ways, they're different. Like the modern quarterback dad is doing some of that stuff, but is, is more so like obsessed with hiring and perhaps firing private quarterback trainers. Uh, he's flying his kid all around the country from Orlando to Las Vegas to LA. So he can get seen at camps. He is totally obsessed with the kid's social media to the point that, you know, during a seven on seven workout, the dad will sometimes have a drone flying overhead so he can accumulate footage for an Instagram highlights package. (laughs) So this is really happening. And then also we have some dads and kids who are, like designing their own logos when they're, you know, 13, 14 years old. So it's again, like an obsession with the kid, but, but maybe less about the fast food and more about, you know, the modern touch and social media is a huge part of that. I don't have kids yet. So I haven't really been in, in these types of spots, but I got to imagine that, that it's the toughest position to kind of be a parent, to like watch your, your kid yeah. play, because, you know, like there are so many things that are within a quarterback's control. And also at the same time, so many things that are outside of their control. 
Did, did you get some famous examples from, from the book with, with some of these dads that you talked to, Archie Manning, Phil Sims, Warren Moon, yeah. or, or whoever, where they had maybe kind of an embarrassing interaction where they had to like pump the brakes on something that they were doing? So there's a lot of talk in the book um, of parents who are advising. I say like, what's your number one tip? And, you know, maybe it's Joel Clad or, or Brady Quinn or different guys, guys who have older kids. They say, don't sit anywhere near, <laughs> don't sit anywhere near the refs. Don't sit near other parents because stuff's going to come out of your mouth that you can't believe. Um, you know, you bring up Chris and Phil Sims. That was a really interesting one. So most of the dads I talked to, most of the successful dads, say like Archie Manning, their advice when it came to picking a college was stay out of it. It's up to the kid. He's the one who's going to be, you know, up at night uh, getting, getting harangued after a three interception game. So you want that kid to be the one who has made the choice. However, huge exception with Chris and Phil Sims. Phil Sims told me that he totally regretted not being more involved in Chris's college choice. Mm. He said, he said, what does a 16 or 17 year old kid know? And Chris backed that up by saying going to the university of Texas was a huge mistake. You know, he's a Northern kid in New Jersey. He goes down to Texas and he ends up in this brutal situation. He's competing against major Apple white. They love major Apple white. He's like, you know, the comeback kid. He's the local guy. He's got this adorable name. And Chris Sims comes in as this like fair haired kid, this Yankee, and they never let him forget it. So most of the dads I dealt with will say, let the kid decide but then Chris Sims said, no, 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 no. If you want to be, you know, a good involved quarterback dad here, take control. So it's tough because like it extends totally to the high school level where if a kid finds out he's not going to be a starter on his high school team as a sophomore, what do you do? Do you stick it out or do you transfer? And I've seen it done a, a lot of different ways. And, and that's really one of the tough dilemmas quarterback dads face now. You bring, uh, you bring up, do I get involved in the recruitment process or do I stay out of it? Archie was sort of heralded as the dad who stayed out of it and, and let Eli yep. make that choice and let Peyton make that choice. And, you know, it, it's kind of like the opposite of the Todd Marinovich and we're now we're, we're seeing kind of, hey, you can be hands off and still have a lot of influence and still kind of do things the right way. And now we're seeing Archie as a, a granddad quarterback dad, I guess we want to call it with, with Arch. Yeah. Like the way that this is playing out is I think a lot of people are trying to see the tea leaves and what's he going to do here and there with all that. But yes. what insight did you get with, with Archie about his experiences, both good or bad and just kind of how he handled that with them? So the Archie stuff was really fun and it was truly a pleasure. I got him for about 90 minutes. And I'd say when I conceived of this book, like my first two targets were Todd Marinovich and Archie Manning, sort of two ends of the spectrum. One of the cool things about Archie and talking to him is just how totally different his three kids are and certainly were growing up. So you've got Cooper and he's the cut up, right? He's just funny and loose and all that. Then you've got Peyton, who is so hyper intense. Archie's describing moments where Peyton is showing up at a little league game and Peyton is bossing everybody around saying, <laughs> hey, you got to take extra infield practice and you got to get here early to take extra BP. And Archie is like, would you just calm down, man? Some, some kids just want to show up. Would you relax? And when Archie would, would sometimes pick a team that Peyton was going to be on, Archie would pick it based on what parents he liked, he wanted oh, to hang good. out with. So Peyton <laughs> would, would see the team and, and he'd say, these guys can't play. Are you crazy? What are you doing? 
so Archie would, would I think kind of mess with him in some ways. And, and one other story there that I think is so funny that's in the book is uh, Peyton's school was supposed to start having tackle football, I believe in the seventh grade. But in the, when Peyton was in the sixth grade, they announced they were not going to do it until the eighth grade. So Archie turns to his wife, Olivia, and says at one point, Hey, you don't think Peyton's going to burn down the school, do you? <laughs> so that just, that's how intense a kid he was. Then you have Eli, who was so quiet, he barely said a word until he was 10, 11, 12 years old. So that certainly extended to their recruiting. You know, uh, Cooper didn't play much college football. He had the stenosis injury. Peyton, you know, his recruitment was, you know, every day of it was, was a national story. And Archie was very careful to say, don't pick Ole Miss because of me. You know, and he ended up choosing Tennessee, and it was great. Then he joked to me that that uh, that uh, Eli bailed him out by choosing Ole Miss. So that was the case with Archie, where you've got three kids with three totally different personalities, and it speaks to advice for all the dads out there: quarterback dads, soccer dads, even if you don't have a kid who plays sports. Like, know your individual kid. Some of them are going to want your guidance and a heavier hand, and a lot of them are going to say, you know, you're going to want to say. You make the choice, you know, you're, you're mature enough at, at this point to do that. Do you get any sense for how he's kind of passing that down to Cooper, who is experiencing this for the first time himself? Not much. All I know of, you know, I talked to Archie about a year ago and he mentioned this to me. This was interesting. He said, Hey, I saw a list of like the top quarterbacks in Arch's class. And Arch was the only one who didn't have a Twitter handle. Mm. He's like, and I thought that was great. Now Arch has since joined Twitter and look, yeah, if you're Cooper Manning's kid, you don't need to publicize. <laughs> They'll come to you. It's the same thing if you go to Don Bosco or any of these big-time high schools. But for most kids, you do want to have a really good social media presence. And that's a big part of the book, too. You've got some stories about uh, the up-and-coming guys as well. Uh, Brock Vandegrift is one that, yeah. especially in the SEC, Georgia fans are really interested in kind of what his next chapter is going to look like. And uh, his dad, Greg, coaches at Prince Avenue Christian. Obviously, he coached Brock when he was in high school. I got to imagine it's even more difficult if you're a dad in those spots and you have an entire football team that you're worried about. And obviously, he's not the first. He's not the last to be in that spot. But, you know, your son's a five-star quarterback prospect. Managing all of those different dynamics is probably a really difficult thing. And he feels like he's probably making mistakes all over the place. What did you kind of take from your conversation with Greg? That was also a fascinating one. And Greg, um, I mean, he's worthy of his own book. He is, he's immersed in all this stuff and he's really funny. He talks about terms like daddy goggles. You know, he, he goes to these camps and, and, and he just sees these quarterback dads who are completely completely nuts. I mean, I think he's also telling me a story of, you know, you see like a, a freshman in high school who's driving up to a camp. It's like, how old is that guy? You know, that's, it's like, how, how does this, how does this freshman have a bull mustache? But it was a very interesting recruitment there. Obviously Brock chose Oklahoma and that was going to be his decision. And then they go to a game in Norman and the mascot ends up having an accident. I don't know if you remember this where it tips over. Yep, of course. Yeah, and they, they actually sort of take that as a sign. Now, clearly, they already had it in their heads that Oklahoma wasn't going to be the best choice for them, really based on geography. It was just going to be so hard for the family to go out to Norman. There are two younger sisters in that, in that family, and both are going to be college scholarship athletes. So uh, the tough part with choosing Georgia was Georgia doesn't have a great reputation for developing NFL players. 
So when um, Brock tells his mom and dad that he wants to go to Georgia, they are like, that's awesome for us. But are you sure this is really what you want to do? Like, don't do this because you're close to your grandma or you're close to us or it's convenient. Make sure it's something you really want to do. And he said, no, I want to play in the SEC. And I believe that Georgia is going to open up the offense more. So obviously Brock didn't get much of a look there uh, during what was an incredible uh, first year at Georgia. And I can tell you this, the Vandegrifts believe that, 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 uh, that he's going to compete for that starting spot. I mean, that's a hell of a player to beat out. It's Stetson Bennett, but they're, uh, they're not giving up. And, um, you know, they're planning to stay at Georgia, certainly. Yeah, I, I think uh, those last words right there, Georgia fans listening to this probably just, oh, they just exhale. They're like, all right, good. He's not going to hit the portal. Because that's the biggest thing they're, they're looking for in the spring games. Like, they, they think Stetson's going to be the guy. I think Stetson's going to be the guy to start the year when you win a national championship. You burn that right to be the day one starter. But I, I think, like, going back to his recruitment, it's interesting that you bring up that point about it, seeing that that is like a sign that maybe you're not meant to go to a program when you see Boomer Schooner like tip over like that. It's this exactly. viral clip. Like, what, what am I watching? Because I remember hearing about how like there was this rumor that he was going to, to decommit from Oklahoma only if Lincoln Riley was taking the job with the Dallas Cowboys. Did you, mm-hmm. did you, was that rumor or anything like that? Was that discussed at all? That wasn't discussed, but by the way, like, the last page of the book, basically before the acknowledgements, I give Greg the final word. And um, it is, quote, this spring football, the quarterback dad says, will be interesting. So I think to the outside world, they would all say like, wait, 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 wait. you think your kid's going to unseat that guy, that all-time legend who just, you know, had one of the greatest second halves of college football and just led his team to a national championship. And yeah, quarterback dads always believe in their kid. And maybe he's right to believe in their kid. Or maybe, you know, there'll be a moment during the season where, uh, you know, where, where, where Brock wins the job. But I just think it's fascinating there um, that even, even there, the dad is saying like, okay, you know, I'm not content to have him just wait on the sidelines until Stetson uh, graduates and moves on. Um, so no, to answer your question, it didn't come up with, with, with the Lincoln-Riley situation. Uh, I think they all want to play for for Lincoln, no doubt. And and one of the guys in my book is also Caleb and Carl Williams. So uh, Lincoln comes up a bunch there. Yeah. What what were those conversations like with them, knowing how that relationship has developed? And now Caleb has gone from being just the guy at Oklahoma who's the next great Oklahoma quarterback to now following him at USC in this new era of the transfer portal. What what did what did you kind of get from that? Did you have that conversation after he had transferred to, to USC? Great question. So I reached out to Carl early in the season and then during the season, and he very politely said, Hey, you know, we're basically under restrictions here. We don't want to do anything until after the season. I said, mm-hmm. no problem. I'll hit you back. And then he blows up. And then I'm like, shoot, I'm not going to get him now. He's too big time. But Carl was great. Like to me, he is the quarterback dad with the most business acumen. He's the one who's able to sort of look at the biggest picture. I mean, their number one goal as you know, Connor, is to be the number one draft pick, to be number one overall. So that's where they start by saying, who can get, who can make Caleb number one? Number two is they are always thinking about business. I mean, they have trademarks out for the Superman. They got the Superman logo. Um, Carl is very involved. Carl's the kind of dad who, I mean, he might have missed one quarter of all of Caleb's games for his entire life. In fact, he, he told me a story like he's in a business meeting in Washington, D.C. And he's like, okay, are we good? Can we wrap this up? 
And then he goes flying down the beltway because he doesn't want to miss like any of, of Caleb's game. And I think Caleb was like, you know, 11 years old at the time. So a very involved dad. Now that said, he insists that Caleb chose USC on his own. I think it's one of those deals where Carl gives him all the information, maybe steers him, and then Caleb makes a decision. And I think made a very good one in this case, not only for football, but also for NIL. So that's a dad that really was committed. He basically, when Caleb told him at age you know, nine or 10, I want to be in the NFL, I want to be the best, uh, Carl said, okay, let's do it. And then he opened a gym. <laughs> he opened a gym by his house so Caleb could go with his friends they called it the breakfast club and start working out at four thirty five in the morning. Yeah. It's, it's unbelievable to hear about the guys who are, are in that spot who feel, okay, I have an obligation now. If my son has the talent to make this happen, what do I have to do to be able to open up doors? And it is not as easy as just stepping back and saying, well, they're, they're going to handle this. You do have to kind of flip that switch and go into a different direction. I'm sure the book is going to provide so much great insight on that. Uh, you, you've had some pretty cool experiences in your career kind of covering college football. I mean, just as long as you have for, for the Tribune, especially you've been very connected. I remember with Pat Fitzgerald, former big Ten yes. commissioner, Jim Delaney, uh, on behalf of all, all of college football, could you maybe just like, just, I don't know, shoot Jim a text, ask him if he'll come out of retirement? Because I, I don't think I can take a decade of secondhand embarrassment with the Alliance. Interesting. I'm sorry. So you want Delaney to come out and replace Kevin Warren? Uh, yeah, yeah. Just, just uh, look, I, I get it. It's, we need a punching bag in college football. Kevin Warren has definitely checked that box for so many people, but just somebody that has, um, dare I say a clue and, you know, has some sort of a presence. I think the entire college football world would welcome Jim Delaney back with open arms. Now I got to ask you, so is everybody so down on Kevin because of what happened with the big 10 and, we're canceling. No, no, no. We're in, you know, all related to the pandemic or is it anything more recent than that? Uh, I'd say that I'd say that okay. seeing, seeing the, seeing that, and then seeing the way that the Alliance has played out where oh. you hear this big deal about it. And then we find out that it was just basically these commissioners looked each other in the eye and said, we're going to walk step, you know, step in step with one another. And, you know, like, to be honest, I, I think that Jim Delaney set a bar that was really high. They would say, don't be yeah. the guy after the guy, but yeah. Kevin Warren has not helped himself so far. Well, Jim Phillips, you know, who Jim Phillips is, um, I've known Jim for 20 years and we're pretty tight and I thought he should have been the big 10 commissioner. He would have been absolutely sensational. He is, is tireless. You know, he's the guy who returns your texts at four in the morning. And sometimes I'm like, wait, are you still awake? Or are you already up? I don't even know when your day starts. Um, and they could have had Jim and, and all the athletic directors wanted Jim Phillips and he would have been an a plus plus. Kevin went in and blew him away. Um, you know, Kevin went in there. He had all a lot of Jim's good qualities, but then he also had this business acumen um, from the Minnesota Vikings. Uh, I think the Big Ten also wanted to be a little more diverse, as a lot of organizations do nowadays. The problem is Kevin went in with almost no college sports experience. Now, if COVID hadn't happened, he would have had some time to – you know, develop these connections and, um, you know, work through the coaches and the ADs and the fan bases and the TV partners. I mean, that's such a massive job, but he gets thrown into this job and all of a sudden there's COVID and look, um, yeah, I mean, there's certainly some decisions I'm sure he regrets, or he says I was dealing with the best advice I had at the time. So, I mean, 
I believe in Kevin. I know him quite well. Incredible, incredible substance there. But I also understand the frustration because every I was still at the Tribune when everything was going on related to will they play or won't they play. And that was basically a disaster the way it was handled. Yeah. We make our jokes, but it does feel like um, Greg Sankey kind of took on that role of alpha in the room, that room of right. power five commissioners, which is so important in, in, in an era in which we're seeing this power kind of play out with all these TV contracts. You know, Delaney was the one who paved the way for, for these TV contracts to, to get into the billions and the deal that he did with the Big Ten, the, the, you know, with CBS and Fox, Big Ten Network. We got conference networks because of Jim Delaney, and he was huge in the 14 playoff. And I, I think that right. the biggest misstep, though, that the Big Ten has taken was not understanding the magnitude of championships and instead being sort of content to understand like, hey, we're, we're building a business model that's working. We have a lot of successful programs. We can brag about our academic excellence, our conference schedule with nine games, all those different things. While the Big Ten is doing that at, SEC, at Big Ten Media Days every single year, the SEC is over there celebrating another national championship. I, yeah. Like that, that's the part where I see the biggest disconnect. Is that kind of a fair critique at this point, considering that it's just been such a difficult road for the Big Ten to get a national championship, one of the big two revenue sports? I, I just think, Connor, it's one of those deals where, uh, I mean, how much does the conference office, like how much can Jim Delaney help bring a title in? Like he, believe me, I mean, he is ultra competitive. You know, like he played basketball under Dean Smith in North Carolina um, he, like whenever they had the big 10 ACC challenge, if the big 10 went, you know, three and 11 or whatever the record was, I mean, he like took it personally. Uh, he hated losing and all that, but ultimately like how much can a conference do? And, and I don't know. I mean, that's an open-ended question. Like, um, is the big 10 helpful in any way for, you know, kind of the resurgence of Ohio state football since like Urban Meyer's first or second year and, and extending through Ryan day. Um, are they, is the big 10 responsible for the fact that, I mean, the last basketball team to win a national championship remains Michigan state, right. In like 2000, yep. I mean, it's like crazy to think about. So I think they would say, Hey, we're controlling what we can control, but we're sort of limited here in terms of, you know, how can we get the big 10 to deliver a football championship? That's a tough one. Maybe they would give the excuse of, well, we'd have to lower our standards, but I think probably they just have to move geographically to the South because that's where most of the great players are. Yeah. And it's hearing, you know, the, the subtle jabs at the SEC while they're, they're bragging about 24 varsity sports. And, you know, we take all of them seriously here. And it's like, well, you know, I, I could argue that that there are a lot of SEC programs that, that take all of these other, you know, non-revenue sports seriously. And they're still able to win championships in football. It's just a little bit tougher when you see things like, oh, we're going to do the nine game conference schedule. And you're doing that because you want to make that money. You want to entice that TV package. Right. Whereas the SEC has the eight game conference schedule. The ACC has had that. It's been able to get teams in the playoff consistently and hasn't had to worry about that. Um, you broke a story. I'd say, what, one, I'd say one quick thing on that would be, you know, I think the Big Ten prides itself a little bit on being like the biggest revenue generators. So yeah. even if they're not winning the titles, they look at it and they say, oh, we have the best network and we have all this revenue. So that's kind of what they fall back on, which is not very satisfying to fans. You uh, you broke a story a few years back about Harbaugh pulling off pulling an offer at the last minute, and uh, it was this offensive lineman right. Eric Swenson who actually went on to have a pretty solid career at Oklahoma. Be honest though, Harbaugh reached out to you and just ripped you to shreds when he saw that story. 
So it's actually a great story. And I'm glad you're asking about it. I mean, I, I was as mean to him as any, like Charlie Weiss and Jim Harbaugh, I think were, were, were the two guys I was ever the meanest to when I was writing columns. And that one really pissed me off because you've got this kid in the Chicago suburbs, Eric Swenson, and he thinks he's going to Michigan. And like a week before the offer gets pulled out from under him and it was terrible communication. And I thought a lot of what was wrong, you know, with college football at the time. And, and, you know, I thought Jim mishandled it and really sunk my teeth in and Michigan fans hated me for it. So what do I do one year later? I'm going to do, let's look back at this story and see where everybody is. And, um, you know, because Eric Swenson's dad was pissed and his high school coach and they were all all angry about it. So here's what happened. So I'm doing this one year story and I've already got, um, I guess, Swenson's dad and high school coach. And I'm like, I got to try to get Jim, even though I hear he, you know, MF'd me when the story came (laughs) out. Who knows if that's true? Whatever. That's what I heard. So I, uh, you know, I've known the Michigan media relations guys forever since I've been covering the big 10. So David Abloff, I think gives me Jim's number Call Jim. Hey, you know, just uh, leaving this message in case you want to participate in the story. I'd love to talk to you. I go to the Apple store and I get, I'm getting a new iPhone. So there's like 30 minutes where I have no contact. I can't take calls. So I get my new phone and I see, Oh, there's a seven, three, four number. Let me, let me see what it is. And it's Jim has left a message. He goes, Hey, Hey, today I heard you called. Um, Happy to talk to you for the story. Give me a call back. And I'm like, now I'm screwed because now I can't say he didn't call me back, but I'm never going to get him on the phone. I did get him on the phone. He was about to board, board a plane somewhere. I think he was recruiting and he was great. And he, he took responsibility for it. He said, you know what? If this kid thought he was coming and he wasn't, you know, that, that's ultimately my fault. I, th- I think the disconnect was between Tim Drevno and Eric Swenson's dad. Mm. And they just were not like, like I think, the dad wasn't reading the tea leaves and Drevno was probably stringing them along. So I think it was those two guys where it happened. So I ended up doing the story one year later and um, was really happy to do it. And Jim and I kind of had a breakthrough at that point. And um, I mean, it's not like we've stayed in constant touch, but we, we, we've texted or talked a couple times and I really, really respected the fact that he called me back because 99 out of 100 coaches wouldn't. They would have said, this is a negative story about a kid who doesn't even play for me. Why would I call back? But he did. And I think the one year later story was pretty cool. Your uh, relationship with Harbaugh has had a better ending than the Paul Feinbaum relationship, which was we documented that last week when we had Paul on. And yeah, let's just say they're not getting coffee anytime soon. Um, oh, great. Last question before I get you out of here with some rapid fire. You, you've been able to write a lot of these um, these Chicago Tribune silver football stories, which for those who don't know yeah. that, the award given to the Big Ten Player of the Year. You got to spend some time with the family of Dwayne Haskins. Uh, I was wondering yeah. if you could uh, if you could share an interaction of kind of what 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 your experience was like being with him in Indy. Yeah, and I'm getting kind of some goosebumps thinking about that family. So. Uh, what I would do, like it would change a little bit over the years and the earlier years when the Tribune had more money to spend, I would try to go out to the college campus and, and, and talk to people that way. Um, and then I remember getting, yeah, some, some specific guys in the early days were, were interesting to get. So in terms of Dwayne, what I did was because Ohio state was of course in the big 10 title game. I set up a breakfast with his mom, his dad, and his uh, younger sister, Tamia. And we just had a great time talking. And like Tamia is very theatrical and, you know, one of these people is like perfect for the camera. Dwayne Haskins, senior, awesome guy. And I got to say, like, if I would have said 
there's no way he's not going to make it in the NFL because you combine the fact that he had great size, unbelievable ability, probably threw it as well as you know, one of the top 10 people on the planet. Um, obviously, there in Indianapolis when he threw for five touchdown passes against Northwestern, one of the best quarterback games I've ever seen. And then has this incredibly supportive family that uh, moved him out of public school. He ended up going to a really good private school, got a good education. So the whole thing absolutely shocked me that he didn't make it in the NFL. So um, Dwayne Haskins Sr. Um, I remained on his text list every week or so. He sends out like a proverb. And um, so we kept in touch a little bit that way. I actually did try to contact him for the book and he politely declined uh, to be involved in quarterback dads. But um, one of the, one of the great families I was able to talk to over the years. I got five rapid fire questions for you. Get you out of here. Just five questions. First thing that comes to mind. Does that work for you? Absolutely. All right. Uh, toughest interview of your career was who, and tell me why it was Sammy Sosa. Uh, it was, it would be a tie between Albert Bell and Sammy Sosa, mm. Sammy. We had a lot of good times, you know, where we were collaborating on stories and then other times where if you said to him, I, if you said, Hey, it looks like you missed the cutoff man on You think I missed the cutoff man? Why? He would just take such offense. You know, Oh, Sammy, you're in a bit of a slump. You're, you know, one for 27. Oh, you want to teach me how to hit now? So he <laughs> would get in. He was the most defensive athlete I've ever covered. Lumel Nadi's and Gino's East, or you can have the field for de- best deep dish pizza in Chicago. Uh, I love Lumel Nadi's thin crust. I think Ooh. it is absolutely delicious. And then for deep dish, I'll go Uno's or, uh, or do it. Can't go wrong with that either. Uh, you're a New York native and a Jets fan. Yes. Who are you keeping your fingers crossed for at, uh, at four and 10? Oh, no. Study up, man. I'm a little behind on my NFL draft. I only know that uh, I placed a futures bet on Ikema Kwanu when it looked when, when Mel Kuyper came out, and he it looked like then Kwanu was going to be number one, and that totally blew up in my face. I thought I was a genius because I had him at like plus six hundred. Can you tell I'm a sports betting guy now and yeah. a points bet? You can probably tell. So I am behind on my draft prep, but uh, I don't know, man. The Jets need just talent across the board, so. Uh, just bring in the best available, I guess. The best order at Portillo's is what? Oh, by the way, Kyle Hamilton. I want Kyle Hamilton. There you go. Love That's good. Notre, Notre Dame guy. Yeah, Semi-local. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, I get the Italian beef with sweet and hot peppers. A little dipped, not drenched, you know, not where you can squeeze out the gravy, but dipped. And uh, if I'm really feeling like throwing some calories on the combo with the sausage beef. Do you have, have you done the cake shake? No, talk to me. It's exactly what it sounds like. It is an entire piece of Portillo's chocolate cake shoved into a chocolate shake. It's, it's oh unbelievable. It, it should be illegal. It's one of those things that you're just like, I, I feel the diabetes creeping in as I'm having this, but I can't stop having this. It's so good. Well, I'm, I have two kids, two girls, they're 13 and 10, and they're obsessed with uh, sweets and ice cream. So we'll, we'll, uh, we'll pass by Dairy Queen next time and hit that. There you go. Uh, all right. Last one for you in your, uh, in your new role at points bet, how often do you have to tell yourself not to tweet something because it sounds a little bit too much like Darren Rebell? <laughs> Darren is fascinating. He's That's got a two word. million, he's got 2 million Twitter followers and 1.6 million of those are hate followers. Right. <laughs> I mean, but everybody like you got to respect the guy. I mean, that guy, First of all, also everything he touches, he ends up making a, a shit ton, right? I mean, the action network and the drink he got involved with with Kobe. So 
Uh, Darren, I think, has embraced his role as uh, America's favorite sports nerd. And uh, no, I don't want to sound too much like him, but I do admire the man. That's the nicest thing that's ever been said about Darren Ravel. Not just on this podcast, just period, uh, ever. That, that's that's number one, uh, top of the line. Uh, everybody go get quarterback dads uh, out, out on sale literally the day that this podcast comes out, April 19th. Teddy, really, really appreciate the time. Best of luck with everything, man. Awesome, man. QBDads.com. Your questions were amazing. This has been uh, an absolute joy to do, Connor. What's my destiny, Mom? You're going to have to figure that out for yourself. Life is a box of chocolates fullest. You never know what you're going to get. All right, figuring out runaway pets. Well, we got a little story. I did not want to have to tell this story, but it happened. We were having a nice little Easter Sunday, you know, once morning activities are over, like with most holidays, right? You know, I obviously opted to do some yard work, you know, a little edging, a little leaf blowing, a little mowing. A great day, some would say. Yeah, pulling some weeds, you know, just just doing what I do. The way that our backyard is set up is, is ideal for pets. It, it's, we got a vinyl fence, it's about like six feet tall, six and a half feet tall, and our property sits up a little bit it's kind of a little bit higher. So unless you're driving by in like a semi truck, you really can't see into our yard. It's not like if dogs were hanging out here, they wouldn't see other dogs and freak out. Like, so it, it's, it's set up well for that. And we, we let Rudy out all the time. It's really nice to be able to do that. He, Rudy's our, our 10 year old cat. He, he roams in the backyard. He, he lives like a king. I, I have sent you pictures of Rudy where he's, he's either like just laying on his back sunning as one does, or he's sprinting from one side of the yard to the other. Yes, like, he has two moods. Yes, that, that's it. There is no in between whatsoever. He lives his best life outside. He really does. There's nowhere that he can crawl under the fence either. Like, especially, um, what's a nice way to say this? Rudy would not fit under a fence. Right? <laughs> Same, King. Yeah. Um, so on Sunday, we we have a garage that has a door leading to the path, um, like on, on the side of our backyard, right? So I rarely have that door open, and then I also rarely have that big garage door open, like leading to our front yard outside usually at least one of those doors is closed. And actually the door from our backyard into our garage was like mostly closed, at least I thought. Um, so Rudy's big thing lately is that he has realized that he has been everywhere on our property except for the garage. Um, so don't you know it, garage door, he pawed open somehow I mean, I, I probably left it open just a, a little bit, a smidge, but enough for him to be able to get. And uh, the garage door was open. So, so you're talking about bed. like a doorknob door, not like a slate garage door. Okay, just make you sure. I was imagining door. him having Herculean strength and just picking up the garage door. <laughs> no, if, if Rudy's doing that, we got bigger problems on our hands. Um, but, but yeah, he's able to kind of get, get that little door open and then the garage door is just wide open because um, I was doing work in the front as well. So uh, I, I had my back turned as I'm pulling weeds, trying to pull weeds from, from the base of the, the lime tree. And uh, Lauren comes outside. She goes, where's Rudy? 
99 times out of 100, he's just around the corner, still in the fenced in area of our backyard, or he's chasing a bug or something, you know, cat's gonna do what cat's gonna do. One time he had crawled under our, our fence into the neighbor's yard, but we literally saw him do it because he was not very quick. Mm -hmm. And we had to go ask our neighbor to, to fetch our large cat out of his backyard. Quite the interaction it was. Love cat. Um, but like we took care of that. We took care of that part of the fence to, to make sure that there's literally no way anymore for him to be able to escape. But leaving the garage door open uh, kind of changed the game. Pretty quickly, we realized that he had escaped. And anybody who has experienced, who has experienced this with a pet before uh, knows that moment of panic. And when it sets in and all of a sudden you're just, your brain goes into a million different places. Like I, I, all of a sudden I'm thinking to myself, Rudy doesn't even know what the front of our house looks like because he's not allowed to roam in the front. It's That's a really good in. point. He doesn't know what home looks like. He just knows the, the, the rooms. Yeah, so like he doesn't know what to come back to. It's not like a dog who you know you play with in the front yard or something like that. I, I, I'm thinking to myself, if he gets away, he's not gonna know what home is. Plus, he's, he's almost 10. Like he's not built for this. He's just <laughs> not. He's very domesticated, okay? But I also held out hope that because, um, again, he is clearly not a stray based on his full figure. We can, that's the nice way to say it. Right. I, I was thinking that maybe someone would see him and go, yeah, this is clearly somebody's pet. It's not just one of the, the neighborhood cats wandering around here. We have 40 houses in our subdivision, but it's not a through street. I'm running to the end of the subdivision down the middle of the street, looking under cars, talking to people who are outside, asking if they've seen a white and orange cat. Oh. The entire time I'm thinking to myself, our pet of 10 years escaped and it's entirely my fault because I left the door open and Lauren is never gonna forgive me. I'm never gonna forgive myself. I mean, he's my buddy. I, I'm, I'm not gonna go back inside, I say, until I find Rudy, all right? That's, that's my mission. Not gonna, nothing, nothing is going to get done the rest of this day until we find him. To paraphrase Billy Madison, you get your you know what out there and you find that freaking cat, mm -hmm. right? That's not what he actually says, but you get what I'm saying. The entire time, so you're going worst case scenario, they're building an entirely new subdivision of houses next to our neighborhood and it's a construction zone. So I'm like, maybe he's there. We live in a cul-de-sac um, and it's basically a block from a pretty busy street. So it's very residential, but Rudy can jet. And what if he somehow got onto the busy street and I'm gonna run out there and I'm gonna see him dodging cars. Like my, my heart rate is just like speeding up. I go through the entire neighborhood and I knew that Lauren had already looked at the seven houses in our cul-de-sac, but I decided to look at the houses in our cul-de-sac again because he probably didn't go that far. And my neighbor, two houses down, has his garage door open. And don't you know it, Rudy is about five feet into his garage just chilling having a great old time he staring me down. He was trying to come home, but he didn't know what home looked like. So we just found the nearest garage and just like yes. plopped out. It was like, Connor will find me. <laughs> Facts, 100%. I, I think that was his mindset. Uh, like, I didn't even, and, and the neighbor, I actually know he's the one who, he's like my, he'll come by and he'll, he'll give me compliments if the yard is looking good or something, or he'll give me a tips. He's giving me a tips on, on edgers and stuff like that. Um, he, you know, he, he's giving me some pointers, which I'm very grateful for. It's not like the guy at the gym that's coming up to you and telling you about form and you're like, just get away from me. This guy's actually helpful. 
I didn't even tell him, hey, my cat is in your garage. I'm about to walk into your garage and take this cat and take him out of here like he's Simba, all right? We weren't doing that, but I did. I did because I don't, I don't care. Like, if he, he's like, what, what are you doing going into my garage? I'm like, that is my cat. <laughs> I need to get him. Can you see that, um, that little furry <laughs> fellow over there trying to eat your plants? Yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's mine. Yeah. That's, that's him. Uh, this entire interaction was maybe 10 minutes. Like, maybe. I, I, I don't know, though. It felt like two hours. I never want to experience that feeling again. I, I scolded Rudy, made sure he knew how terrified we were that he had escaped. Uh, look, I, I will absolutely not pretend to know what it's like to lose a child in a supermarket or, or anything like that, because this is very, very different. But it made me sympathize with that that much more. I cannot empathize, but I can sympathize with that feeling. It sucked. Will, have you ever been in a spot like that? Well, hold on, we gotta. <laughs> I'm sorry you went through that, first off. Um, that's rough. Uh, glad that King Rudy is back home. I'm Not sure Easter of all days. Was he, was, he, was he spooked when you picked him up? Was he happy to see you? No, he was pissed. <laughs> he was not happy. He, he, made, he made this meowing sound. Um, it wasn't quite like super high pitch, but it was high pitch enough. There was one time, so this is going to sound really bad. Another quick, uh, quick story here. Yeah. So I, I've told you about this, I think. We, when we used to live in our apartment complex um, in Altamont, we were like, hey, you know, we'd like to be able to have Rudy experience outside just to walk him around in the apartment complex, like nowhere else. We're not gonna like walk him on in major streets. We're not gonna be those people, but like he never gets to go outside. He never gets to experience life. I think he would like that. I think he would really enjoy that. So we're like, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll get him a leash. We'll see if he, if he takes to a leash. We can just walk around the apartment complex. That's literally it. That's all we wanted to be able to do. Walk him on the tennis courts and, and see just kind of how he interacts. See if we add some element to his life. Um, long story short, he did not like the leash. Mm -hmm. But one time we thought, all right, we'll put him in the leash and then we'll carry him downstairs. Our, our apartment, our old apartment backed up to like the, the apartment pond mm -hmm. and it was right by water. And that cat, man, the look of terror on his face. I think he thought he was getting baptized or something. <laughs> he lets out this screech that he couldn't replicate again if he tried. Mm -hmm. It was the most terrified I had ever heard him. He's like clenching his back paws into Lauren, who's trying to carry him down the stairs. He literally pisses himself out of fright. Oh no. <laughs> and then Lauren's like, this is not happening. We bring him back upstairs. We throw the leash away. We're like, all right, let's pretend that never happened. So this is the cat who once was so afraid of like outside and like water. Yeah. It's probably more that he was afraid of water. One thing about cats is anymore. they will convince themselves that your whole 10 year relationship is just a front for one big bath. Like when they yes. see that bathtub, they're like, ah, I knew it. <laughs> so like, we're, we're thinking, he's come a long way since then. So yeah. being that afraid to kind of like be outside. But man, it, it sucked. I never want to experience that again. Never want to. It was so bad. Oh, you? Have you experienced anything like that? Yeah, like I said, I'm glad he's back, man. We have, so like, honestly, man, like, our two cats, like, you guys usually hear about Walter, my fat cat. He, we've done the thing with Walter, like, we've only really experimented this since we got the house, but our house has a little, like, side porch, so you open the door, right, there's a porch, there's another sliding door, or like, 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 uh, what's it called? The doors on the little contraptions that auto-close, what are those called? Sliding glass door? No, it's not sliding, it's a screen porch door that has that little contraption that automatically closes you know what i'm talking about 
Yeah, sure. Yeah. I don't know the name for it though. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's just like a, a screen door. So, so point being, we've done the thing where we like put him in the hallway, open the door, and like try to like see like see if he wants to come outside. And, like, because we have a little porch, and he's just not about it. He just looks at us like we're insane. He's like, "That's the outside. I don't know what you're doing out there." Boo! However, the other cat loves being outside. We think she was actually an outside cat before we adopted her. So, like, anytime we open that first door, kind of like we were talking about, into that little side porch. She like takes off out there, and her favorite thing is to eat the fake plants out there and just barf everywhere. So she yep. <laughs> the worst. Yep. So she will, and like bless her heart, she has eaten the same plant four or five times, barfs every time. Doesn't eat a ton of it. Just like her body's like, why are you eating plastic? And so she'll do that. But there was one time point of my story where we were like unloading the suitcases and I like told Brittany like hey can you go inside and like grab my backpack or something just like just like the last little thing and apparently she left that door open but not the outside door oh, so no. we had our little cameras on to make sure the cats were okay we just saw the door open and we were like oh my god and because we were out of town we had driven to like Alabama so it was like oh no uh, we called John who like sped over there and he like sent us a picture of just like he opens the outside screen door and she's just sitting there like meowing at him like hello friends and we were freaking out dude for like a good like you know like 30 to an hour because we didn't know where she was we couldn't see her on the camera and she was literally just kind of sitting up like on the on the screen so yeah we had something like that this year not as not as like intense though I've discovered a new frontier. <laughs> My brother, I am Lewis and Clark. <laughs> yeah. This place is unbelievable. How have I never experienced this? But terrifying. Don't wish that upon anyone. Mm -hmm. So questions in the Facebook group we asked, um, how far away did your pet get before you found it? Has it happened repeatedly? Uh, who would have been to blame for losing your pet, like me? Uh, if you didn't find it, what measures did you take to search? Did you go all Billy Madison on it? Uh, what was your biggest lesson learned from your experience? All right, so we got some good responses here. Tristan Smith, um, he says, man, we had a hamster one time. I named him Buddy. Good name for a hamster. He had been missing two or three days, and this is like the 16th time he had escaped. So we didn't think anything of it. We came home one day, and I kid you not, he was walking around the mud, the mud room, without a face. Oh boy, um, what? I'll skip over. I'll skip over this part a little. It's a little graphic. A little graphic here. Um, let's just say he was uh, self-harming. Uh, another pet got to him, and uh, yeah. Uh, Okay, our dog got to him apparently, so we buried him after dad handled the rest. A scary day for a 13-year-old. Oh, Lesson no. learned, don't get hamsters anymore. Okay, didn't mean to start that dark. I, I don't have anything to add to that. I think hamsters are great. You get to hold them, you get to actually, some, sometimes with some of these pets with like reptiles or something like that, I, I get it. There's there's minim, like there's some return on it, but it's, it's somewhat minimal. But at least a hamster you can kind of like, you can play with, you can have on the ground as long as it's in a confined space. You know, ideally if, you, if you're able to keep track of them, it'd be a fun pet to have. I don't know, I've never had one. Um, yeah, man, I have like the opposite of the story actually. So one time I lost my hamster at our house and my mom went to the pet store and got me another hamster to try to like oh, replace no. me or replace it to where I couldn't notice. She was like, oh yeah, we found your hamster while you were at school. I was like six or seven, I was really young. And in the middle of the night, my dad was like, you know, going to the restroom as dads like to do in the middle of the night. And the yep. hamster like ran across his feet, like the lost hamster. So he like takes a trash can, like puts it upside down, the hamster. And he's like super sleepy, so he just goes to bed. And then in the morning, he just wakes me up and hands me my hamster with no contact. 
I was like, yeah, like, wait, yeah, like, this was just in his cage. He's like, no, sit down, son. I got a story I tell you. <laughs> so then I had two hamsters, more of the story. Who would go to bed with just the hamster trapped? I mean, I guess if that was your goal, but. He was, you know, my dad's very Alabama, and he very much was just like, ah, well, hamster will figure itself out. <laughs> it'll, it'll survive in there, it'll be totally. Right. Uh, self-containing ecosystem it's got, no big deal. Michael Dark says, I was probably 17 and it was the dead of summer. My dad ran into my room and woke me by screaming, Lexi is dead. We lived on a busy street in Detroit and she got hit by a car after leaving our yard through a hole under the fence. Oh gosh. A few moments after my dad told us, Lexi stood up with her dislocated jaw bleeding profusely and was able to get out of the street and come back to the yard. She ended up living for another 14 years, but Ooh. she definitely had CTE and we had to try to keep her away from my kids when we would come back to visit. That's, well, that's worst nightmare. Yep. I cannot begin to imagine thinking your pet is dead and being dead, not just because of natural causes where you've kind of had time, but seeing all your worst fears confirmed in that situation. But then the feeling of being like, oh my God, alive? Right. C gonna live another 14 years? CTE, all right. He's got Jim McMahon brain, okay? That's fine. We're big. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Jim McMahon got CTE at least the first time because of the cheapest hit in the history of professional football. <laughs> That's what you go back, Go back and watch like that play where, he gets, where Jim McMahon gets just pile-driven into the ground by a Green Bay Packer. Mm -hmm. It's the dirtiest play in NFL history. There wasn't even like a flag called on this play. He always says, that's where everything started. That's where the CT started, right there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I believe it, 100%. Mm -hmm. Somehow I this, know. like most things, is the Green Bay Packers' fault. Yeah, well, <laughs> what else fault would it be? Of course. Yeah, 11, 14 years though after that, man, talk about like, everything is gravy living on borrowed time. Oh yeah. Shout out John Party. Um, yeah, that's that's as good as it gets right there. Gosh, what a terrifying thing to go through though. Okay, uh, this one from Lillian Jewell. Lillian says, my mom was a four-ish, my mom has a four-ish pound chihuahua that she brings on family trips. Years ago, we were in St. Augustine. Oh, I love St. Augustine. Mm -hmm. And uh, the dog went missing. There were a lot of allegations of who left the door open and let her out. After spending almost eight hours looking for the dog with my mom freaking out, we finally had to check out of the hotel room. We were in the hotel's parking lot when a cleaning lady came out with the dog. She had crawled into the tiny gap under the bed and was just chilling until they came in to change the sheets. There, were, there are still family meals that end with an argument about whether my mom should apologize for what she said to us when she thought we let the dog out. The dog <laughs> continues to go missing in and under everything she can find. And then and Lillian posted a picture of this very, very tiny, adorable dog, the cutest dog in this laundry basket. I can see how that dog would go missing. Listen, if you want the most chaotic place to the internet right now, just go to these companies. Oh my gosh. We got a little bit of everything. This is the cutest, sweetest dog. I'm so glad you guys found it. Yes. Oh, that would, be, that would feel so bad. Because then families get involved, blame games happening and all that stuff. But... Yeah, uh, losing a dog in a hotel room, you're like, all right, where, where could it have gone? Surely, there's, there's somewhere, we have to figure this out. You just, can't, you just can't ever picture what it's like though, when you can't, like, when you don't have, you're also not at your, your top, like, peak 
what's what's a nice way to say this? You're not thinking clearly in those moments. Right. You're just not. You're thinking, surely they did the worst possible thing for him. In cases like Michael, where you have a dog that goes out into a busy street, surely my dog did exactly this thing, um, not just kind of hid in the, the secret part of the hotel room that nobody would ever look in. But glad to hear it was okay. Glad to hear it's still able to go on trips. And glad it was able to experience St. Augustine, maybe. It's a great place. <laughs> Drew Page says, me and, my, me and my wife are currently on the road moving to Washington State for about six months with our four cats. We are taking literally every measure to make sure we don't lose them. When you get off at a rest stop, do you let the cats get out? You can't let them get out, right? You gotta keep them in the car the whole time, but they gotta do their business somewhere. But imagine right? if they did, and they had like four leashes, and they were just walking out like Crow Deville at a gas station. <laughs> that is the most king energy of all time. It's like time to go walk all the cats. Yeah, I don't even know how that works. Because I guess mean, how did Lauren do it when she moved down here? I, I don't know. I'm drawing a blank on that. But having four of them, buddy, that's a uh, keep your eye on them at all costs because you can lose count easily if you're driving late into the night mm-hmm. like i can't even count to three at this point much less get to four <laughs> keep track of them good luck drew hope it goes well man uh clayton tyler lavelle says our cockapoo winnie got loose in the the ponds did i pronounce that right ponds uh, yeah ponds kroger yeah uh, on the ATL belt line. My wife went into the store. My task was to watch her until Kelsey got back. I tied her leash around my thigh to enjoy a refreshing um, uh, coconut lime. Oh, yeah. coconut lime? B-A-I. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the, yeah, Justin Timberlake's all about Oh, bye. Yeah, like the bye. non, I know what you're talking about, yeah. Yeah, I've had those. Those are actually pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the process, she got loose and ran into Kroger. It was truly a sight to see Atlanta PD, multiple Kroger employees, and myself chasing her. <laughs> she was apprehended in the fried chicken section after a brief pit stop. A few months later, she got loose in the local Bath and Body Works. Same scenario. I was to blame. <laughs> this dog, which <laughs> the, there's a picture of this in the Saturday Down South podcast Facebook group. You would now think stray dog. No. <laughs> this dog very This dog might be worth more than me. This is the cutest dog. You can tell it's one of those very floofy like dogs like that. And it has this look of mischief in its eyes that you're like, you know it's just like I ran away and I'll do it again. <laughs> yes. Like you gotta give me all the attention in the world. If you have a pet that comes back to you upon calling their name, your anxiety's just gotta be so much less, right? I, I I would think in some of these spots. Like when we dog sit for uh, Lauren's boss's dog, Lucy. Who's like a she's like a chai weenie, mm-hmm. um, so it's like a chihuahua mix. Um, if if she's like around the corner or something, all you gotta do is call out Lucy, and then she'll just come running and sprinting like like she's like you're about to give her food or something like that. And you never really have to worry about that. Whereas like Rudy will come if I'm staring him dead in the eyes and I'm on the other side of the yard and I'm basically like kind of coaching to sprint <laughs> towards me, but that's it. You know, it's like, I can't like call out his name and he's gonna come around the corner and just be like, oh, hey, what's up, dad? Like, what's going on? Some dogs are like that though. And if you can, if, if you have a dog like that, that's a blessing. Uh, probably makes things a little bit easier in situations like this, but glad to hear that Winnie is safe. All right, um, gosh, Emery, this one's long, man. This one's long. Um, all right, we're gonna, sorry, Emery. We, we do Emery's like every single time. We, we got a long one. We're a little bit limited on time today. Uh, Tyler says, 
youngest dog got out while she was a puppy and decided it would be fun to run up and down the street. We got her back and installed a baby gate at the end of the, the railed in porch to create an airlock system to prevent further neighborhood jogs. Hmm. If your dog does that as a puppy, you gotta just be thinking to yourself, this is gonna keep happening. They, they have an eye for that. There's a, there's a dog um, in, in my brother's neighborhood that's always, that's always going missing. And it's in the case that that, that, that dog deals with, it's negligent owners. Mm-hmm. And they constantly have to fight that battle where they don't, they don't even come out to look for it. And it's like, oh, like that, that's the stuff that I hate hearing about. It's like, you should not own a dog. You just should. Dude, and when people fight, we have a situation where somebody will post in our Facebook group, be like, like the neighborhood Facebook group, be like, hey, we found this dog. And the owners will post like out, like six hours later, be like, oh yeah, it's ours. Like no further like care. Like, yeah, like don't bring him in. Don't, we don't really care. Like that sucks, dude. Yeah. Don't buy a dog or adopt a dog and then have this expectation that they're just automatically going to be an indoor outdoor pet just because you don't want to take care of it or keep an eye on it. If you have, if you have a pet that maybe it's a cat or something like that, it ends up being kind of an indoor outdoor thing. I kind of get that. My, my in-laws have a couple of those. They live on a five acre farm though. So it's a little bit more manageable and they always kind of come back and they don't really have to worry about that, but they just kind of give it food and they don't, they didn't ever have like, Oh, Hey, you're going to come inside and you're going to be our pet and we're going to take care of you. You want to come inside? That's totally fine. But they, they do a good enough job of taking care of it and kind of understanding the role. But gosh, that, that, that just kind of makes me sick thinking about that. I realize that Tyler, sorry, that's not really related to your story, but that's just a, a pet peeve seeing, seeing homeowners in that spot with, pet owners rather, uh, in that spot with a dog that they clearly just aren't watching. Because if it keeps happening, something, something there is just not clicking or adding up. Mm-hmm. Okay, Jared Brown, uh, gosh, this one is long too. We'll, we'll end with this one, we'll end with this one. Uh, Jared says, I lived in a house with two other guys and one of the roommates had a dog from hell. In retrospect, he wasn't a terrible dog, but we were all fresh out of school and didn't have time for a puppy who ate clothes, peed everywhere, shed more than my wife and dug holes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're not wrong about that. One day the dog must have dug his way out of the backyard. The other roommate and I were getting fast food around the corner and saw the dog run right past us while we were in the drive-through. We decided our Crunchwrap Supremes were more important than chasing down a dog we didn't care for. Oof. What? What? We agreed to act like we hadn't seen a thing. Oh God, this is bad. Uh, After days of searching, the dog owning roommate called the Humane Society to find that his dog had already been adopted. Since oh. it was within the time frame that he legally still has ownership rights, he went to get his dog from the adoptive family, who soon saw that the family had, that adopted his dog had a child going through treatment for a serious sickness. He did the right thing and took the L so the sick uh, so the sick child could continue to find happiness through the dog. Everyone was happy. Wins for Spence and I. Sorry, bro, Matthew. Um, that's a tough look. That's a tough look, man. Um, look, I'm a believer, not to get like too philosophical here or anything like that, but I think sometimes things just happen and it's up to you to make the best of a situation. Certain things happen because people don't necessarily take control. Not to get like, I'm not trying to get too preachy on here or anything like you make your decisions, whatever, obviously. But that's a situation where it seems like it ended up working out. Sick kid gets the dog. Dog clearly needed different 
guidance ownership, if you will. I know people don't like using that word with pets, but you get what I'm saying. Um, that still just makes me sick to hear that though. Like that, that absolutely sucks. And I remember I had that situation, I had that situation last year and we talked about it and figuring it out where there was this little puppy who was also named Lucy, ironically enough, that I saw uh, on one of my runs. And it was like, this dog is clearly, clearly domesticated. Mm -hmm. And I called, I called the number on the collar and lady just no answer, no answer, no answer. So I'm like, I'm gonna like just run with this dog and take care of it. I'm, I'm two miles away from my house, sick brag. Um, but I'm like, I'm like, I can't, I can't just take my eye off this dog. I, I, I just can't. Right. And, I, and I'm not saying that makes me like, oh, you're a good person. Like, no, because I run with this dog and then it pretty much decides, no, nah, I'm gonna start doing my own thing. And it starts zigzagging through the street. And I'm like, I have no control over this situation right now. And sorry, I've told this story before, but there was, a, a truck uh, coming, just driving, this guy who was driving his daughter to school and, uh, he, and he sees me just clearly like in over my head in this situation. I'm like, this isn't my dog. I'm just trying to, you know, I was gonna take it to the backyard and then take it to the main society or something like that just to be able to kind of find a home and find a right situation for it. And the guy's like, let me take care of the dog. I have pets at home. He's got like his, his daughter in the front seat there. I'm like, all right, this isn't just a guy who's just gonna take this dog. But then, and then like we exchange information. I'm like, okay, if this lady calls me, I'm gonna be able to tell tell her like where exactly this is and what this, this situation is. And he now has her information as well. I don't know what happened with that dog, but I would have felt like crap if I left that dog there. Right. Yeah, I think I think that's kind of like what this segment, you know, I'm saying is about like maybe you make some decisions in college that you wouldn't make as an adult and stuff like that. I'm not necessarily gonna hold it against him, but yeah. Yeah, not sure. Not trying to shame you, Jared. Yeah, not yeah, trying yeah, to shame yeah, you. Yeah. yeah. It's like, you know what I'm saying? Like we've all been bad about something. I think I think for me, like personally, like like that's the thing, man. Animals, like there really is no overstating like how much responsibility they are. Even cats, you know what I'm saying? Like I was talking about, I gotta keep an eye on my cat eating stuff and throwing up. Like it's just like, it's it's always like, you know, it's always a big deal. And like I said, you know, if you're in college and you always think, you see, I don't know if you've seen the TikToks, but like, we got a house dog. And I'm like, this is usually a pretty bad idea because yeah, it's usually a bunch of like dudes that are just kind of out trying to, you live yeah. their life, eat some crud traps or whatever, and you throw a dog in there and it's cute for like a couple of weeks. And then you do the whole like, well, you got to do this. No, dude, it's not my dog. Like, we're going to do this together. No, dude, I don't want to do that. So I can understand why that could get really rough, especially if the guy who, you know what I'm saying, was owning the dog wasn't taking responsibility for it. Like you said, at the same time, kind of kind of rough. But at, but at least the dog found a place that it got what it was looking for, got what it needed. So, you know, a de facto happy ending, some would say. Yeah, I remember uh, college fraternity brothers who had this dog that was, she was adorable, but nobody took care of it. And it was w exactly what you would think of for a college dog. And I, I had so many instances thinking to myself like, this dog probably deserves a better home. Mm -hmm. Probably should not be here in this situation and deserve, like just needs a different kind of love right now. But yeah, I mean, people, people buy dogs and pets and stuff like that all the time when they can't take care of them. And then pretty soon the dogs run away and it's like, oh God, this is just, this is, this is a mess for everybody involved. But um, yeah, I'm just still thinking about that a lot yesterday, not wanting to experience that anytime, anytime soon, runaway pets, 
not a fun thing. Thank you for everybody who shared responses in the Saturday Down South podcast Facebook group. Um, Going to have a longtime friend on the show uh, this week later on. Guy that never had on these airwaves, but talked with him a good amount over the last few years. And somebody that I think uh, listeners of this podcast have probably been hearing this guy for a very, very long time on some sort of some sort of airwave. So looking forward to that. If you have not, leave us a five-star review, subscribe to this podcast, join the Facebook group, your name Red on Air with Figure It Out or Bold and Brash. Thanks guys. Talk soon.